Today we're exploring the long-term impacts of COVID, not just whether property prices are sustainable, if we'll ever see immigration return to prior levels or whether work from home is here to stay, but structural changes to the way we live in Australia. What will we keep and what will we throw out? What will the new normal look like? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as down Download our free full or forecast report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au We're delighted to welcome back Simon Kustamaka, Director of Research at the Demographics Group. And Simon is here to share his insights into how the pandemic and lockdowns have changed Australia on a number of fronts. And of specific interest to us are changes in population, housing preferences and consumer behaviour. Now, we have met Simon previously back in episodes 40 and 138. So we know we're in for a treat with this chat. Thanks, Simon. So great to see you. Great to be back. Simon, absolutely love. This is probably my favourite topic, to be honest. Um, probably interlinks very much with property, right? Demographics, the changes in that. How does that change property longer term? You know, the needs of society. But, I mean, on a COVID level, it constantly keeps surprising us. I mean, maybe not for some with all these lockdowns. But, you know, from a demographics point of view, what are some of the surprises, this sort of longer lockdowns and, you know, this whole process? What do you think is the bigger impacts longer term that you know, Australia needs to be aware of, I guess. Well, whenever we look at COVID trends of of any sort, we want to understand, are we talking about just the COVID impact that will go away once COVID, whenever that will be, once COVID goes away? Or is this a lasting change in the behavior of Australians? For example, Mm. we've seen um, this big increase of retail sales uh, that go online. So usually we had around... We're now 6.6678, whatever percent. So just under 7% of all retail in Australia was online. That jumped during the pandemic to up to 11, close to uh, 12%. It doesn't sound that dramatic when you hear those numbers. But that was at the absolute height of the lockdowns last year. And then they dropped back to just over 94 9.5%. So really what happened in practical terms we put around two percentage points more of our retail sales to online rather than brick and mortar that means we shifted for each percentage point we shift 7.5 billion dollars from brick and mortar to online that's a big Mm. shift that's lots of little uh, boutiques and uh, crystal shops if you will um, right. But of course, this comes from all different sectors at the same time. But it's a real, it's a real shift in the way that we operate. Certain shops will close. Um, certain kind of, uh, you know, sales assistant jobs will go away, and other jobs will grow. Um, in in warehousing, in delivery uh, drivers, all these kind of jobs will grow. So that's a complete COVID shift uh, that we can be pretty certain that is here to stay because we saw this big. P, uh, big shooting up uh, to, you know, pandemic levels, but then it settled 
to a level lower than the peak, but above the um, short-term or, or previous pre-COVID expectations. So then we saw an increase in preferences, a change in consumer preferences. We are, It's here to stay. In the retail example, this is largely because we had lots of old pop, uh, older populations that for the first time purchased Amazon, purchased on Amazon and online anything. And, you know, once you, you know, once you've done it and you see how convenient it is, you order uh, at Uncle Bessos again. And <laughs> the same You're with uh, online um, online shopping at supermarkets. You know, it's very convenient to do the family shop online. Mm. Excuse me. So, so does this, I mean, obviously you can see the obvious impact in commercial real estate. Um, there's going to be certain properties that are no longer be needed by certain businesses and all the type of property is going to change obviously you don't need a shop front you need a warehouse for instance but also you know what you're suggesting then is the boutique the smaller operators it's does it give them an opportunity to get to a wider market or is it actually more inclined to make the bigger um bigger and more successful and actually shut down and and make the barrier to entry for smaller players that much higher I would say it makes life, in general terms, it makes life harder because you are competing mm. against bigger players. So that's With more money. Difficult. But it also means that if you are a shopkeeper of any sorts, it, ne it means you need to rethink your function. If you're just a shelf, mm. you will lose. If you somehow become a destination or... You know, whatever that might mean, it might mean that people come to you for your expertise and your skills as well as your shelf space. That's good. You know, yeah. people buy very expensive uh, bread uh, or fruit at certain stores where people actually know what they're talking about when you talk to them. So this mm -hmm. is the skill of the individual shopkeeper might well be the make or break point. It has to do with community engagement. And of course, to a certain degree, it has to do with um, commercial landlords being smart enough to lower rents, to not demand higher rents, because it is much better for a store to be occupied than to be empty. And that, again, then goes uh, flows down to the council level. I really want to make sure that my high street has no empty storefronts. Mm, yeah. Well, I mean, that's a good point, right? So your high street's sort of your local community, right? The, and we have sort of working from home, which we'll probably talk about next, but... Yeah. You know, if you're working from home a couple of weeks, you pop up to the local cafe. Um, you don't travel in lockdowns as much. You go there to your local cafe on the weekends, etc. So are you seeing that the cities are really, really struggling from lots of levels, retail, commercial, yeah. etc. But the local community, the high street, um, and that's probably something that we're going to likely see stay. You know, those little high street communities are going to matter more post, you know, COVID than they did prior. Oh. Absolutely. So there is a certain kind of uh, base retail level that will always happen based on where the people are. If I am not going to the CBD during the week, I will have my I will have my coffee that I usually purchase at my uh, CBD cafe. I'll either have it as my local cafe or I will have it at my kitchen counter. So somebody will still sell me a coffee. Um, so it's just that the sales channel and the sales location changes. While I'm out in my local neighborhood cafe, why the hell wouldn't I pick up a bread, a bit of, you know, whatever I eat. I, I do all my local purchases then. If I need a gift, I'll go to the local store if it hasn't closed yet, mm. you know, and buy a nice 
bag or whatever I buy. And um, <laughs> it's sort of going. That's almost going back in time, though, isn't it? Yeah, that's the right. The olden days, yeah. you know. <laughs> exactly. And we did get this increased sense of community during COVID. If you mm. spend, you know, we are both from locked down uh, cities in Melbourne and Sydney here. Um, but once you've been locked down, you really walk your local streets uh, endlessly. You know characters. You know, mm. you know your local shopkeepers. Yeah. You know characters that you haven't even spoken to, but you know, well, she's always there. There's always, and it it, it yeah. connects you closer to your community. So therefore, mm. people have a very high um, social uh, or emotional connection to their local shops. And you want your local shop to succeed. And, you know, we, we purchase takeaway uh, food from our mm. uh, t- uh, local cafes whenever they were in lockdown. Just because, like, you know, we really don't want to lose those guys. You know, it's a yeah. bit, yeah. Uh, <laughs> bit self-centered, uh, this wish. But that's still, you know, that's how we acted, at least in this household. Do you think the w- flexible work, work from home, I mean, now that we're sort of a couple of years in work of policies are starting to come out more and more i know linkedin said um just last week you know work from home indefinitely is is an option for their staff i mean you know they're tech companies but how do you think the mass market uh you know the corporate world do you think the flexible works here to stay what are you starting to see and read about before the lockdowns at the last australian census in 2016 we had 4.4 percent of all australians working from home that's the benchmark uh, baseline figure that we have at the height of the lockdowns in Australia, we don't have uh, you know exact figures. We only have surveys, but we expect around half of the population works from home. So from under five percent to around fifty percent, that's wow. huge. That mm. is of course nothing that will be there forever. But the new normal will be much much higher than the five percent. Mm. It will more likely be ten. 15%. This literally means hundreds of thousands of people on any given day that do not go to the CBD, that stay at home for work. So therefore, they spend uh, their daytime in their local neighborhood, purchase stuff in their local neighborhood. That means they will actually use, you know, wastewater usage uh, is higher in the local neighborhood uh, than it is in the CBD. <laughs> you buy more toilet paper from the supermarket rather than from a commercial big roll uh, yeah. uh, company. So the sales channel for toilet paper changes, even though we don't, uh, you know, go to the bathroom more. All of those little shifts <laughs> are actually occurring and they are here to stay. The question that we have here is, well, will the new baseline of working from home on any given day of the week be uh, 10%? Will it be 15%? Whatever it is, that's that's up for grabs. Mm. And different companies have different um, opinions. We're, we're seeing plenty of uh, companies, you know, where the leases end, uh, just, you know, ended uh, recently, you know, going down by 10 to 30% of their floor space. You just lease out less and go like oh that'll do that'll do the trick i will have to remain uh, maintain my digital infrastructure anyways mm, so i might yeah. as well diminish uh, and downgrade my uh, my physical footprint and that always then comes to my big question about what does the future of the cbd look like uh, because you know if we all work from home anyways why don't we just lock up the towers and, you know, let nature take over and uh, we all work from home, you know, wild animals roam the streets as in yeah. I am legend with Will Smith uh, in New York. Uh, so that, of course, won't happen. 
because there yeah. is a reason why those knowledge jobs, those office jobs cluster, why they cluster in the CBD. And that is because those knowledge jobs benefit from being close to other knowledge workers. Mm. There is this beautiful ecosystem of work. It makes work better. The only problem is that for the individual worker that happens to be in those jobs, um, that's annoying because you then either need to commute an awful lot uh, to be into the CBD or you need to pay an awful lot to be close to the CBD. So that's not that's mm. not nice. So what I think what we will be seeing is that we very smartly look at our jobs and we look at the tasks that make up our jobs. And part of your job um, is better done in quiet, in the qu peace and quiet of your own home, if you happen to have a <laughs> quiet full home, uh, is the idea when you write an email, when you do a bit of Excel, and when you create a PowerPoint or whatever, you don't need anyone else. You need peace and quiet. You need a computer. You have this at home. For those tasks, I'm not going into the office. But there are plenty of elements of your job that are interpersonal in nature, where you need to collaborate with people, where you need to sit down with your colleagues and your bosses, and you need to brainstorm, and you need to create something together. Those tasks are best done in the CBD. So ideally, we debunch our tasks. We have interpersonal days, and we have peaceful and quiet days. We do all the peaceful and quiet days at home and we do all the raucous uh, collaborative days. We do those in the CBD. If we uh, went to the full extreme and we think that a CBD would actually follow this, everybody would follow this rule, the CBD would look extremely different. It means we have constantly people in and out of the office towers jumping to more and more coffee days because you meet with other people, this interpersonal yeah. nature. The office is a deskless office. You know, you don't sit in the office with noise-canceling headphones, uh, keeping you know, your annoying colleagues out of earshot. That's not what you're doing. Um, you're doing. You're constantly sitting down with your colleagues, working together. Dropbox, the the um, file share uh, or file storage uh, company, um, they killed the office. They don't have offices anymore. They completely took away desks out of their offices, and they are now um, studios. It's called the Dropbox Studio. Um, so it's all about collaboration, and they view themselves as a virtual first company. The default is to work from home. When you have an interpersonal uh, meeting type event uh, going on, you go into the uh, studio, but you're only meant to be there for those tasks. Um, I'm sure they don't kick you out if you, you know, secretly write an email in, in some corner. But uh, that's the that's the new way how they try to structure work. We might not go down, or most businesses won't go down yeah. such an extreme route. But I think ideally we can split our tasks into working from home and doing in the office tasks and then act accordingly. That means that overall we will spend less time in the CBD as an individual worker than before the CBD. If I was a commercial landlord, I'd be very much interested in saying, well, wait a second, I want as many people in my office towers as possible because then I get rents uh, and people actually, you know, lease my, lease my little offices. But that won't happen at the same rate anytime soon. We'll still have two, three years to reach pre-pandemic levels. But in the long run, because even if we have a decentralized approach where more and more people work from home, the CBD will still be the dominant corner or the dominant center of a city because the work demands it. We're creating more and more jobs that fall into this CBD office type 
role. And those jobs will continue to have an interpersonal role. And once a Sydney, once a Melbourne grows from 5 million people to 7 million people, that adds about a million new jobs. Lots of those jobs will at least partially be in the CBD. And then the CBD grows to pre-pandemic levels at some stage. The question is, mm. when? So I guess what you're saying there is COVID's been quite convenient because I think the first time we spoke to you, we were talking about congestion and, and the concern of how we're going to cram in all these extra people that uh, at, plan to, to enter into our cities in the next decades. But this has basically solved that problem. It's basically you don't need more space because we've got enough space. So you're just basically going to use it differently and spend more, you know, each of us spend a smaller proportion of time in there. It's a bit of a mammoth task, though, trying to coordinate all a lot of people, you yeah. know, to actually, you know, have all the in the office days at the same time and the out of office days at the same time and I know that you know anecdotally I've spoken to a lot of people said I've got into the office when we were back before this lockdown when a lot of businesses had started letting people back into the office part-time I go to the office and I find myself in the office zooming people who are actually at home that day <laughs> it's like what's the point um and yeah. and I and I feel too that there seems to be a movement a lot of people I've spoken to are saying I actually am over this working from home because I'm working longer hours and harder and I and never get to move and and I don't even get to get up and move from one meeting room to another because I literally am sitting in my chair moving from one yeah. meeting room to another I'm spending the whole day looking at myself and others on a screen are you finding there's a general a discontent? So what what at first was like yeehaw, bloody love working from home. I get to stay in pajamas all day and I don't have to you know get up earlier to commute. Um, to now going, you know what? It's not all it's cracked up to be. Yeah. So the question, one thing that helps me answering this question is remembering research that shows general work preferences that people have. Mm. So, in you know, there's a spectrum that you fall onto uh, of integrators and separators. I, for example, I am an integrator. I really am happy to integrate my work into my private life. I mm -hmm. jump between uh, looking after the baby and work emails back and forth. You know, I don't care. And I work long hours, but I take a two hour break, you know, dealing with the little fella during the day. All that is fine for me. It does not drive me mad. I mm. enjoy it. Um, my wife, on the other hand, is an integrator. Uh, is a separator. Sorry, mm. I'm an integration separator. These are people who really like to keep um, their work apart. Um, she and I never understood it when she went to the office. She just works. She doesn't look at social media. She doesn't do private stuff. She just goes into the office nine to five and works. It seems like a bizarre concept to to a mind uh, like mine, but <laughs> that's her preferences. And mm. in the current world uh, environment, the integrators are suffering less than the separators. The mm. separators who really enjoy a big chunk of uh, private time, well, they miss out. Yeah. So, so it's the idea. People mm. fall on, on a spectrum there. Um, and do, you think our, do, you, do you think our HR practices have kept up with integrators and separators? No, in a way, no, 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 no. And <laughs> not at all. Not at all. And, <laughs> That's another a beautiful general truism that we can always look at when we look at changes is um, regulation follows innovation. Mm. Whenever you have any type of innovation, people working from home at scale, this just happens. And there is a Wild West phase where people just kind of sort it out. Some people immediately found some sort of great loophole. 
how to not do any work uh, at all. <laughs> Other people found a loophole how they can work all the time and uh, really burn out. Um, so all of this is happening at the same time. Eventually, regulation will catch up. We've seen this in France where you're not allowed to write emails after a certain time and you have to work, computers yeah. have to sw be switched off and all these type of things is, um, you know, they come, they will come eventually, those regulations. Yeah. That wouldn't um, work for an integrator though, would it? No, and that's the weird thing, you know. So yeah. when when you have one blanket rule yeah. over something, as for a big company, they mm. have integrators, they have separators. How do you set a policy that actually suits people? And yeah. one of those issues yeah. would be just around trust. Is to say mm. I completely trust my workforce to do the work, and then to have smart systems in place that kind of somehow measure output. Lots mm. of jobs uh, are very hard to measure output. For example, in mm. my job, I, you know, I give presentations for a living. I write columns uh, for a living. I write reports for a living. There are certain measurable outputs that could be looked at. But lots of my job is just scrolling through data, playing with data, reading <laughs> random stuff, calling people about something. How the hell would I measure this aspect of my, yeah. of my work? Yeah. I can't. Um, it's a you bit know, like I, what I, I do. Same deal, exactly. just having conversations with agents, just getting a, the pulse of the market, just getting an understanding of what's going on by those those seemingly yeah. random <laughs> conversations. Exactly. And if you had a, if you had a boss looking over you, a mistrusting boss, mm. uh, that'd be very hard to actually, you know, convince Justify. them you yes. are useful <laughs> stuff. And I think a lot of people in those sort of work, those cultures that haven't, the boss hasn't been able to innovate themselves um, and get better with their staff working remote, right? Those cultures would be pretty discontented, right? And those staff members are going to hate working from home because they, you know, they're getting micromanaged into oh. the next level, right? Um, and and why weren't you logged on at 8am and all this sort of stuff? And so, you know, the, I think it's the, the companies that thrive in this work from home environment um, and, and aren't thinking about this are really going to struggle, right, to keep talent because mm. uh, they're going to shift to the next company. I mean, the, the big elephant in the room, I guess, for us, um, well, for me anyway, is migration, right? How does this come back? Does it come back stronger? How does the government, yeah. you know, you know, do we you know is it lots of younger people is it the university students are they not coming back you know um how is that going how's the china impact so how's this migration story going to play out i mean is it going to be on steroids are they going to open the gates um then what to play catch up you know you're talking a lot of people that haven't moved here for say two or three yeah. years um and you know a lot of aussies have moved back but a lot of people have left the country as well right um so, you know, what's your thoughts on the whole migration well, story? First, you know, I'd say what has changed? Uh, you know, of course, now borders are closed and you can't come in. But what has changed in terms of what attracted people to Australia? Well, international students are attracted by the idea of getting an English-speaking, high-quality university degree that they can either exchange for Australian citizenship or that they can exchange for a high-paying job in their home country. That's the deal mm. that we make with international students when they come here. Um, will Is there less demand for this? Internationally speaking, we still have this big fat chunk of the human population that is shifting uh, from industrial uh, work, you know, manufacturing style uh, economies to knowledge work. That means the, the need for an English speaking university level education is going to grow rather than shrink. So that's 
that's good. The market for international education worldwide is huge. If I am a mother of a 17-year-old, 18-year-old Malaysian girl, am I going to send my poor baby or my, my, my beloved baby, am I going to send her to, um, to America after all I read recently? Well, maybe if it's a good uni. Uh, but maybe I'm a bit more criti critical these days about America. So I do think America lost ground. They lost tons of international students recently um, it, it, under Trump. So probably the US as the biggest competitor, you know, we win over them. So we would get we would get those people back. There are plenty of non-English speaking countries like Germany, like the Netherlands that are now offering their degrees in English mm -hmm. just, to, just mm -hmm. to tap into this market. So that's, you know, that's against our favor but overall what, what we about canada uh canada is big canada yeah. big, big growth they are doing all the right things by uh opening their arms to um to international students so they're doing the right moves um and is there an issue with china because obviously a high proportion of these students have been chinese and of course there's a big pr push in china against australia yeah. at the so, moment if i if i divide china into two markets uh, i do think we are very attractive for the uh, hong kong chinese market mm -hmm. yeah. yes um <laughs> if i may say so but overall that's a big problem so that's mm. the idea where we see if you rely heavily on one big trading partner in mm. any kind of industry, mm. international education in this example, uh, you're putting yourself at risk. Mm. So of course you'd get, you'd, you'd offer it and you know, China will let Chinese students uh, come here and there yeah. will be exchange. Uh, and really it's, it's, a, it's one of the general risks that Australia has is that we somehow uh, get mixed up into issues of you know power plays that China might want to make yeah. either with the US with us they just need to flex their muscle occasionally but they have no interest in not having their um, uh, their students educated mm. so overall so, this is a power play rather than um, a, a market problem so you, your belief is international students because you're a big part of migration I think it's something that you know we, we forget about right it's not just uh, you know, family members moving here. It's not just highly skilled. The, you know, the international students are such a cash cow for the economy. Uh, and long term, they a lot of them do stay. Um, but, you know, so your belief is that's going to return. I do to think, similar, I do if think not, it will return. Absolutely yeah. correct. Yeah. And then highly skilled. I mean, there's skill shortages, right? You know, I mean, we job abs of, you know, there's certain type of knowledge workers that we haven't uh, educated here that are very educated in certain sectors around the world, right? And yeah. Um, you know, that we've got shortages in. Uh, do you think that that's going to be higher or lower than, than before? Do you think that we're going to have a lot more of those coming than before? So it's a simple, so the way that we use um, our skilled migration list, which is the list where we put the jobs on and we say, if you have this certain qualification, you're allowed to come to Australia. That's essentially, yep. you also need to be usually under a certain age in order to do this, but that's how we get our, our skilled migrants. <laughs> Our economy has massive skill shortages all over the shop. All over the shop. Once the borders can be opened up safely enough, all industry bodies that are out there will lobby for certain jobs to be added on the list. Mm. And then those people will come. This will create, um, so migrants first, international students in particular, and office worker migrants um, as well, first move into the inner cities of Melbourne, Sydney, and Brisbane. 
That's how they first come to Australia. And then after a couple of years in those locations, they learn how the city works and they then uh, move to other suburbs within the city. They might even move to a different city. But the the empty, struggling inner city market at the moment <laughs> will benefit the most from migration. And mm. then with a bit of time, these migrants will spill out a bit more evenly across the, the uh, national canvas, if you will. Um, so that's how migration will play out in the short term. But these, the skill shortage is, is endless. And it is also big. Um, you know, if, if you're an individual worker and you know that your job is, you know, there, there are few of you around and you haven't changed a job in the last two years, please quit today and just get a new job. You will get higher pay. It's just mm. the smart thing to do. Uh, in, in the low unemployment market that we're still in, even though we have all those lockdowns, and you are a skilled worker, change job. Mm. It's, it's, it's the easiest way to earn more money. Yeah. <laughs> well, at the moment, especially because you haven't got much competition it's from overseas, nothing, right? Nothing. You really yeah. shouldn't yeah. wait to change job until migration kicks back in. <laughs> That's just yeah. hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> if you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. And so what about the Aussies coming back? What data, if, I mean, I, we've got an expat financial advisor coming on. I know the anecdotal stories, his clients and things like that, but I really want to get a good grasp of how Aussies around the world are feeling, um, you know, whether they're in London or Hong Kong or Singapore, and maybe they've been there for more than a year or so. Um, so they've got their lifestyle kick out of that journey, right? The, the experience. And well, now, if they've only been there a year, they won't have had much yeah, well, <laughs> lifestyle I know, kick. I know. We've got clients who have you know, been in London oh, for a year or 18 months and awful. it's been a pretty awful mm. experience, right? Um, but they've hung on because um, they want to get that lifestyle experience, which they haven't got the whole purpose of going there. Yeah. But, you know, what What have we got data? What, what do you know about that? We can see anecdotal. We've got people, you know, lots of different countries coming back. But yeah. You know, we, we've also got clients going the other way because they they haven't been able to go for two or three years. So what are you seeing on the ground and what data have we got? So to, the to problem see? there is that we essentially got none. So you, yeah. you, you rely on anecdotal data um, and just general insights into who's moving overseas. The Australians that mm. move overseas tend to be highly, <laughs> I'm being facetious here, but they tend to be highly skilled, private school, educated lawyers moving to London. Um, <laughs> but so that's the general gist is you have highly educated, university level educated mm. Australians who go to the big capitals uh, of, of the mm. world and earn great income. These people returning, they, this is a cashed up market. So these are these are good, highly educated, rich folks um, who can spend money on the on the on the property market. So it's it's good to have mm. them 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 back, if if you will, because yeah. there is a bit of investment flow coming with them. So it's uh, that's nice and attractive. And they of course need to make a decision whether now is a good time to come back. If I'm sitting in London at the moment, and I'm looking at Melbourne or I'm looking at Sydney. <laughs> what is my assessment of of you know where I will be? where we'll be at 
and you, you, you can never know. You need to remember with all COVID um, predictions that we're making, it is like analyzing a football match at halftime. It's, it's a yeah. silly undertaking because you don't know the final score. You're just analyzing half of it. And yeah. that's, not, that's not worth it. So we always need to make, uh, you know, take this into account that there can be uh, a last-minute uh, own goal that ruins it all or something. Yeah. Well, as a football fan, I mean, there was an own goal with the census, I guess, right? So, I mean, you, what do you look forward to more, like the World Cup or the, the census, right? And the census was stuffed up this year, right? Because everyone's at home. Yeah. And so, so your work from home. So the, do you think this, yeah. the census this year is a blessing and a curse? Um, so there is an awful lot of really cool data and research that comes out of just knowing how people get to work and where they work. And that's how we do traffic planning. And mm. all of this research will now need to be done or uh, need to be uh, supplemented with expensive surveys that, that, we, that we run because we need this kind of data. And I'm, I'd be surprised if there isn't more data being created to do this. What we do have, we did run the census while Australia or the, our Australian cities were at all different types of stages of lockdown. Yes. So that is intellectually extremely interesting to understand <laughs> how a non-lockdown city compares to a lockdown city. Mm. How many people work from home based on the stage of the lockdown? What mm. kind of industries, how do industries, how do individual jobs differ in the working from home aspect um, based on lockdown or not lockdown or mm. the severity of lockdown. Uh, all of this allows us very precisely, um, for example, if I work in property, I can then understand the kind of needs that people might have uh, from, from, you know, based on their job. How much do I care about a, a, a study at home? How much don't I care about this? Who are you targeting? What amenities do you then need in a um, mm. need need in a in a in an apartment or house? So you, we can get really interesting data out of this. But that said, um, <laughs> we will see when we analyze census data this time around, there'll be less of at least in certain aspects, there'll be less of all of Australia does this and that. We we then need mm. to more carefully segment it mm. and say, you know. It's it's it is fascinating, right? And I think I commented before on the, on the podcast that I wondered on census night. Well, do I answer this as if I was in lockdown or as if mm. I wasn't in lockdown? I know that technically I'm meant to say exactly what I'm doing here, but it's like, how does that help? You know, but um, you know, I think the whole um, whether a study is valuable or more valuable now, like in a house uh, or an apartment, I think that's obvious i think that search terms on on websites you know the the portals uh shows that too yeah. but there has and and obviously what we have seen too is this massive increase in prices really driven by the owner occupiers looking to upgrade and so everyone's come out of the gates of lockdowns oh, i need more space and but that's also driven people to leave the cities to for the regional areas and and mm. you know we've been sort of talking about this quite a lot over the last year more than a year now and I know Chris is only saying last week, really, that he sort of felt like it had been tapering off. And, of course, this lockdown's hit Sydney and he's, you can see it ramping up again, you know. What are you, you know, are there other reasons? That, I mean, it seems to me that there must be this pent-up demand to leave the city and it's just been the final thing that says, right, that's it, it's now or never, it's a great opportunity. But what do you think's really driving that fleeing of the cities? Is it purely COVID or is it that just sort of happens to be it's the catalyst rather than the reason? Uh, 
Ah, nice and big question. So yeah, first sorry. of all, <laughs> we always need to look at, uh, you know, just how weird data around house prices are is at mm. the moment. So you look at uh, the population movements for Melbourne and Sydney. You have lots of people leaving the city for mm. the regions. And at the same time, you have no in-migration from overseas. So you look at this profile and you go like, ah, oh, wonderful. That is quite clear. Uh, when we look at these charts, we know what's happening with house prices in those cities. They fall drastically because exactly. there is less <laughs> demand. And then you look at the reality on the ground and you go like, wait a second. Yep. Something isn't adding up. House prices go through the roof. What the heck is happening here? And what is happening here is demographics at play. Australia, mm -hmm. once again, through... Uh, you know, is truly the lucky country. Maybe it's dumb luck this time around. Uh, the big millennial generation just happens to reach family formation stage now. You know, big procrastinators didn't start families until their mid-30s. But this is happening mm. now. So the millennials are now uh, leaving their one or two bedroom dwellings in the inner city. Uh, and they're hunting for family-sized housing. Three, four bedrooms. Mm. And they mm. go wherever that is. So all these like big... Uh, you know, auction fights uh, over over dwellings. These are after over family sized dwellings. Uh, nobody. But not every millennial is the same age. Not every every millennial is thirty five. Just had their first baby. Oh, like I it, mean, you know, there's. <laughs> it's, exactly, it's, it's, it's this mass phenomenon of people doing this at the same time. Mm. Of course, you have an upgrader market. You have people who just in an it's it's self reinforcing. So you have people mm. where the house price you know drove their wealth up, and then all of a sudden they consider, well, I'm a Gen Xer with a ten year old. I might as well upgrade my house yeah. because those guys, you know. He'll be an annoying teenager soon. I want him further away on the property or, or something like this. So you so do have all those movements at the same time. Also, you have um, the phenomenon that you have the downsizers, the downsizing phenomenon, which are usually people that, you know, sell a large house and move into a small dwelling. That's not happening at scale. Because these are people, you know, they see rising house prices, you know, why sell now if I can make more money later? Mm. And also people don't downsize based on any intellectual uh, consideration. They downsize because the family home becomes a physical hazard and nuisance to live yeah. in. And the the baby boomer generation, the big bulk of population uh, towards the older end now of the life cycle, they are nowhere near downsizing just yet, simply because they're still too young, healthy and agile at the moment. Yeah. The big downsizing movement in Australia will come in the 2030s, not the 2020s. So you have all of those things moving together um, that people seek large homes and on top of this, of course, you have working from home. All of a sudden, people don't need to look as close to the CBD as they were used to. So usually we said, you know, people want to work in this, uh, live in this commutable distance of 10 to 20 kilometers. But now if I can work from home for most of the time, I still go to the office one or two days. Um, but then maybe I'd, I'm more willing to do an extreme commute of like an hour or two or whatever it is. And then that opens up the population growth for the regions. Of course, also, there is a, a move to the regions for general preference of lower density. When you've mm. been locked up and you're afraid of the virus or whatever, then the regions look safer to you. Whereas at the start of 2020, after the big bushfires, you know, we, we spoke about our people viewing the regions more critically now because they're seen as more mm. dangerous. So that uh, that perception of the regions has, has shifted due to COVID. And Although... Now 
Another regional perception change might be now that in New South Wales we've got COVID cases in regional areas and now that the, the conversation is around are the hospitals equipped the medical systems in these regional areas, are they equipped to cope with COVID or, and, and such things? And obviously as population increases, uh, is the infrastructure and the support uh, there? So, But that might spin the dial again and all of a sudden people lose confidence in the regions. Uh, absolutely. It's one of, it's one of those uh, many aspects where the the region's success uh, is actually almost a, a, a curse in disguise. If mm. you will. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Is <laughs> a small regional market doesn't need many more people moving there to completely uh, have rents go through the roof. Yeah. These are markets yeah. that weren't prepared for the population surge. Yeah. So all of a sudden, you add a couple of people on inner city incomes. You know. They're not necessarily purchasing, but they're looking to rent. So rents go through the roof. That's fine, whatever. Um, But then is there enough enough demand, uh, uh, housing supply coming online very quickly? Well, maybe uh, the local council is reasonably quick in providing a bit of land. Uh, Maybe the local developers are kind of... um, uh, gutsy and proactive enough to to add housing stock. But all of this runs the the problem that where the hell do they get workers from so there's massive mm. skills shortage in these uh, in these sectors and when you then yeah. need lower skilled therefore lower income workers for construction for example how do you convince them to move from wherever they're living now to a reasonably expensive regional market <laughs> because mm. they're rents so that's that's very difficult how, uh, to increase housing supply in a regional market is not as simple yeah. as it sounds. Um, of course, it needs to be done and eventually the market should kind of find a way to create enough stock uh, for the regions to continue to grow. Uh, but in the meantime, there are lots of, there are lots of growing pains uh, to, get, to get this right. I think it's really interesting. I mean, the last year we saw lots of people go to the regions and the typical, you know, the first choice, uh, you know, Byron or you know, the top suburbs in the, uh, north of Wollongong or, you know, top suburbs in Central Coast or Mornington Peninsula or yep. nice areas of Geelong. Um, but they've all gone through the roof, right, you know. Um, and then at the start of this year, they all sort of said, oh, I don't, if I can't go there, I might as well stay in the city. But I think what we're seeing now is people are going, well, actually, you know what, the city areas I want, if houses are way too expensive, the apartments have run on me, let's still go and make this lifestyle shift happen. And they're going to all these different parts of these regions as well but you're so right these regional markets are so tiny in terms of the amount of properties that they would really want and then the amount of those properties that actually turn over per year (laughs) is so minute and it doesn't take much for the demand to be four or five buyers for every property right and and it's just you can't create more properties because there's only so many houses in these markets and so do you think that this shift to the region which was driven by affordability will sort of get wiped out because prices will run on them and then that move won't happen well, as much. I it, mean, it very much right, depends on what's happening in the inner city, isn't it? So there, there are plenty yeah. of folks who predict a, a slowdown of the housing market uh, in the capital cities. You know, can you can you draw on any policy levers of getting house prices down? What do you, what do, you do? And it's it's a very tricky topic to understand how to manage the housing market because we mm. want to make sure that we create enough supply so therefore we want to make sure that people are willing to invest into housing um 
Okay, fair enough. But we also have this desire that every Australian owns their own house. Uh, you know, they're, they're actually contradictory. So how do you run those policies at the same time without anybody losing? Because we can't really add policies that make house prices go down. We can only slow them down without creating havoc. Uh, because there's so you know so much of household wealth is is caught up into the in, in the family home at a much higher rate than yeah. in other countries, so that yeah. um, using policy levers to make housing cheap, like who who, who is willing to do this? <laughs> yeah, and that's the thing. The one way you could do that instantaneously is increase interest rates, right? But the knock-on effects on consumer demand. Um, exchange rates etc um are impossible to fathom those on the economy right and so um yeah it's, it's the same thing isn't it we just want to keep the you know we can't want to slow it down but we can't afford it to go uh, down and it's the idea prices for yeah. now that we have so many people who purchased very expensive property this is the western australian example of a couple of years ago you have people on very well relatively cheap money uh buying relatively expensive properties so there is not much wiggle room for anything to go wrong and you don't want to create a market like this. So you, so what, what do you do? There isn't much that we can do. We are kind of locked into low interest rates. And so we, we deal with it. And so you kind of hope that by adding a bit of supply, um, we kind of stay at an acceptable level. Ideally, we grow the economy fast enough that all of this works. Yeah. And you can do this once borders are open we have another lever open. And this is just simply, you know, the, the more you open up the the, uh, the tab of, of migrants, then you grow GDP. It's the easiest way of growing mm. GDP is to increase migration. Um, mm. And I think that uh, any treasurer that I could think of is, is very willing to play that card. Um, what about sort of um, having kids? I mean, this obviously the migration is a big part to growing our economy uh, long-term yeah. and our population. But we're having less kids, right? Like the, the, you know, how many kids we have is dropping yeah. quite significant, from my understanding, over the decades. Um, you know, is that just something going to keep on dropping? Do you think? Do you know? Do you think that the fertility rate is is a big issue for yeah. for it is for a lot of countries like Japan, for mm. example? I mean, how is this sort of going to play out in Australia? Well, so we we, you know, I remember uh, the news stories of the uh, around the first lockdowns uh, last year. But it was, ah, oh, in nine months' time, we'll see this corona baby boom. You know, just assuming that when we're locked up, all we can think of is uh, procreation. <laughs> uh, and, you know, uh, to demographers or any statistician, this didn't come as a surprise that this was not true. In times of economic uncertainty, in times of pandemics, mm, yeah, historically, yeah. birth rates fall because these are uncertain times. So you don't want to expose yourself to the additional financial risk of having a kid. Mm. So I don't think that this really impacts that many first births but it does impact second and third births where people decide oh it's a bit iffy you know the little fella already is a bit expensive should we give him a little sibling it's like oh you know let's let's wait a second or maybe a year <laughs> um to see how incomes how incomes uh, and, and the economy develop so that just drops the birth rate a bit but also our birth rate in Australia or, or the number of kids that we're expecting over the next 10 years or so uh, is impacted even more because we're taking migrants out of the picture. And migrants, 90% of the migrants are 18 to 39. So these are folks who can have kids, who are adding kids to Australia uh, as there is. So we have a double whammy of, of kids loss. 
you know, lower birth rates and fewer folks who could make those uh, kids. So that <laughs> creates a, a lack of demand on on this end. Which so what's the current birth rate? Like, you know, it used to be 2.3 per family. Uh, it's 1. What is it now? So thereabouts uh, at the moment. So what's that? Yeah, 1.66, I think. So we're uh, not even replacing ourselves. Oh, no, no. We're, we're well below replacement rate. The reason yeah, that yeah. Australia yeah. is growing is uh, migration. migration. Yeah. Well, I know I yeah. heard a statistic the other day. It was that 49% of Australians are either born or have a one parent born overseas. Yeah. That's, that's, I was amazed it was that high. Um, the other thing too, I guess the higher our cost of housing is, so the more yeah. bigger your mortgage is, whether, whether you have the wealth effect or not, the fact is you've got to repay it. Um, I would imagine that would have some level of impact on our, our willingness to have more children, would it, would it not? Oh, absolutely. If you have, it's just how much money do you have to, room to play with, essentially. Mm. All of that, uh, none of this speaks in favour of adding more kids. And so what about the regional shift, though? Like you think about it, if you are moving to a regional situation for affordability and you can get a bigger house and you don't have to worry about the private schooling sort of conundrum that does happen in the capital cities, right? Um, And you you potentially have more kids. Yeah. Do do you think that that potentially is going to play out? If you see this millennial shift there, they're going to have three, not two. Um, And that's going to be one of the saviours for the... For the fertility rate, I guess. Yeah, so really that should... that So if you take more people from the inner city to the country, that acts as a bit of a... You know, it's like a handbrake, but you're still stepping on the gas, if you will. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess it's so interesting, this demography and how it's going to play out because, you know, these aren't impacting the property market today, but, you know, in 30, 40 years, right, like a lower population rate um growth rate um will mean our cities don't grow as much right and our regional subs or if we have less kids etc and i think it's something to really always think about with property because the more that you can grasp this you can more you can see how cities are going to evolve i guess um and it's so we always deal with housing stock so our housing stock that we have um you know it changes ownership it changes occupancy and then on top of this we add new housing stock and sometimes we just demolish old housing stock but what this means is that at the moment we have lots of family homes being occupied by um, one or two people. You know, uh, empty nesters, uh, old widows, and you have this big demand for these dwellings. But they're not. Uh, you know, we are not putting our current population, the, the millennials, into those houses. Those millennials are now buying houses, building houses, um, so that they have this size. In 10 years' time, the millennials won't be creating any more kids, really. Um, That will then be the role of the next generation, which is smaller. And millennials will then look for to upgrading their homes and the old population will slowly die off. So you have this big population shuffling and the people that are dying off in 10 years time or 20 years time these are actually p- uh, part of the par- parents of the millennial generation so that means when the millennials will be upgrading their family home in the next well not in, let's call it 20 years time uh, they're doing it in a market that is a bit more favorable to them and they all of a sudden are cashed up because they have an inheritance mm. so <laughs> 20 years time from now will be a crazy market and you have this big generation of millennials that only come into money from inheriting it 
fairly late in life. So what do you do then? Um, and how does this impact when you have a super cashed up cohort of old folks with money? How do they do it? We're seeing massive increase. I'd say with early inheritance, um, you know, the bank of mum and dad um, is definitely, it's not like a 20, 30 grand. It's hundreds of thousands yeah. of dollars if, if the parents are in that position. And uh, it's making up more than, you know, even a 50% of their deposit. Um, and, you know, the back of their personal wealth effect is actually, you know what, we can afford to give it to the kids because we're confident, yeah. you're right. And their super funds are going through the roof, um, their growth, etc. And so I think the early inheritance thing is something that, you know, is definitely playing out. But how do people like also living at home, like a lot of older generation couldn't imagine leaving that home. So they'll put a lift in, yep. they're living longer, they're healthier for longer as well. So how are these going to potentially play out with the long-term demographics if they live longer, stay at home, healthier? So what, what we're talking about here, first and foremost, points to the general division in Australia into rich and poor which is further mm. growing apart. So we have more and more yeah. high-income earners, more and more low-income earners, and fewer people in the middle. So the uh, bank of mom and dad phenomenon really only makes sure that the people that can... So you enter the market earlier if your parents are richer. So you therefore mm. benefit more from uh, accrued housing wealth over time. Um, so it is really the house... You know, we had this big report recently about... Um, the how important ownership house ownership is for home ownership is for your security in in, mm. in, yeah. in in old age and that will further increase so you'll have this um this owning asset owning class and you have the non-asset owning class that is also of course linked to the income but it's it's just amplifying we're creating mm. an Australia that looks more and more uh, like a two-tiered economy and that impacts on the housing market. If you are a property investor, you'll probably listen to this and go like, oh, wait a second. Uh, that means there is a bunch more people in the future than there are now who will rent for their whole lives. So maybe yeah. mm. it's worth, even because if we have more people who can't possibly afford to buy a home, they need to rent. Yeah. And somebody needs to own those rented dwellings, which then Simon, further uh, amplifies this trend. This, exactly, yeah. Yeah, this interests me because, of course, you're German. Um, for anyone who was listening and thought, oh, he's got a slight twang in his, in his accent. Right. He's losing his accent. He's <laughs> so losing his accent. You, <laughs> Germany, uh, and I, um, you know, I'm not, I, I, yeah, what am I trying to say here? So I, I'm going in my understanding of Europe. Okay, so I know Germany is one country in Europe, but my understanding is that there's a lot of a higher level of acceptance of renting um, and a lot better protections for renters as well. And there's a different um, expectation of, of home ownership. And also families tend to own properties in their families for a lot longer. Yeah. Would that be fair to say those things? Yes. So there are plenty. Of, so what you also, in, in general terms, if you think of Europe over the last decades that is not a growth uh you know they're not growth countries these are countries no. with stagnating population germany has been mm. slowly shrinking or stagnating for decades um all of eastern europe is shrinking um europe as a whole is, is stagnating yeah? and so that means there isn't a general increase for more for need for more property mm. so property is less of a speculative asset 
uh, yeah. than it is than it is here. That's the first place. There are of course pockets in in Germany or Europe as a whole, like uh, Munich and Berlin at the moment are like Australian markets. It's, mm. it's the same stuff, mm. uh, but all the other corners really. They're different. If you, you buy a house because you want to live in it and because you can afford to buy it, you do not yep. expect to have crazy rates. If you bought a house here, and I live in Northgate, a crappy house that you bought 10 years ago now for $600,000 is now worth a million dollars more, which is crazy. Mm. Or, or, you know, this is nonsense, to, to be quite honest. Um, but really, it's it's the Australian model of, of creating wealth. And some people say it's a pyramid scheme. Some people say it's sustainable. <laughs> Whatever it is, it's something that worked for some people really well. And so there is yeah. less interest of uh, of changing this around. On top of this, you have the general acceptance of renting in, mm. in Germany, simply because if you rent, you get really good protections. Yeah. And you have you have different rights. And now that Australian Australia will see more and more renters every year, you know, as a share of uh, uh, of tenure type, they will get more rights. And to a certain mm. degree, um, mm. you would want to give renters lots more rights, really strong rights to make investment into uh, property a bit less attractive because landlords need to do a bit more. So therefore, you want mm. to balance things out a bit uh, by you know, you want to slow the uh, the growth engine a bit. So my question with that is that if if the gap between those who have and those who don't have gets bigger and bigger, and if that situation occurs where where there's more of an acceptance of renting, it's there's there's less of a stigma around it, there's more security around it, there's better protections, um, and and just literally the gap and the hurdle to get into home ownership becomes insurmountable, and so. Could we move in, you know, notwithstanding, you know, migration and supply and all that sort of stuff, is it feasible we could move into a similar sort of situation as you find in Europe with property and that there's no point speculating on it because fundamentally there's not going to be enough people that can actually buy it off you down the track? Um, I don't think so because Australia <laughs> always has the lever of population growth um, through migration, mm-hmm. which isn't which we are willing to do. And which so is a you- tool that we that we utilize, and I don't think we'll stop this anytime soon, because and some people, of course, will hate to hear this, but there is mm. no reason that Australia shouldn't be home to a hundred million people. You know, <sighs> we could actually fit those people on the mm. continent uh, in different cities, not just in our existing top five cities. We spread them out more evenly. We'll find ways to manage water and whatever. So this could be just physically speaking, would easily be possible. Um, mm. And therefore, there is no reason we would stop using property as a game. If you actually think there will be an Australia of 100 million people in the future, if you, if you take this long-term view mm. of how to, to manage the property market and urban development and zoning in Australia, then you'd go, yeah, no, this won't slow down. You could actually bet on yeah. the property market forever. And we, di- we do know that we live in an aging country. And the easiest way to afford that we can actually pay for our retirees is to make sure that we continue to grow. And yeah. I yeah. think that's the route that we will go down. Well, lots of people will not like uh, to hear this, but I think it's a smart way in a regional um, economy. It is always important how strong, how big your country is. It gives you security, strength through numbers, if you will. China will Mm. face the opposite problem. They'll go from 1.3 billion people to right around 800 million people 
in the next 50, 60 years. This is a rapidly wow. shrinking country. As of 2026, China is shrinking. We got five years of growth in China, then China starts to shrink and they will never ever wow. reach that peak again. So, you know, that's in relative power. India is a different game. So if you want to pick a future superpower based on demographic terms alone, better in India, yeah. not in China. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> very much younger there, right? The, the 20 to 40 yeah. year olds there is a huge part of the, the old uh, snake, I yeah. guess, the, the demographic sort of um, pyramid. Uh, and have you got a property Dumbo for us, Simon? Um, you might have heard of another one down there. I know you've had a few over the years, but have you got another recent one for us? Well, I guess one of the problems, uh, one of the big mistakes that you could make at the moment is just to be betting against Australia. Um, it's, I, I guess you're tempting to do this because we are in such a negative mindset when we look at our lockdowns and it is extremely frustrating to live in a, to live in, in a lockdown and then to think that Australia will be less attractive for mig migrants, for investment over time and then you bet against Australia in whatever way or form this is. Uh, and I do really think that Australia can follow the same strategy as Canada. Canada is planning to become a 100 million uh, person country. Therefore, yeah. growth will continue. Um, the markets will grow. Um, you just need to manage this from an env environmental perspective. But if you view the environmental argument on a global scale, it doesn't matter whether I live in Germany, I live in Australia, whether I live in Bangladesh, whether I live in Australia, it doesn't matter. Uh, because then, you know, I still live somewhere. Um, we just need to locally manage this. And so I guess my Dumbo is don't bet against Australia. Oh, it's amazing. I think you're, you're right. I think that is the, the ticket that they're most likely going to go for, right? Because that's what's uh, going to get no recessions, going to get job growth, etc. So uh, it's, a, it's a very, uh, it's an amazing Dumbo to be honest. I didn't know that about Canada. Is that something recent that they've sort oh, it's, of made that decision? So it's not like, you know, there's a big goal that says like we need to have 100 million people. But that's the general gist in, in uh, Canada is there is the goal. You can grow to 100 million people, no problem. And growth is the goal. The goal there is to give international students uh, citizenship rather quickly to make sure that you grow the people. If you look at this from a global perspective, the world is not at risk of overpopulation. The world is at risk of underpopulation. This is very counterintuitive what people know is we will reach... Are you talking about it from an economical standpoint or from an environmental standpoint? A pure people, pure demographics. Um, we, will, we, we are close to 8 billion people. The world will probably see just around 9 billion uh, people at mm. top. And then we start to shrink and age. And that completely throws around uh, demographics. That means all the aging countries will fight for the for population from the global south, essentially, if you will. Those The young talent. And the best way to do this is starting right now. Because we already, globally speaking, reached peak child. There will never be more children in the world than there are now because birth rates drop everywhere. That means <laughs> once you once you reach peak child, there's no way of uh, creating more humans. Birth rates will drop below replacement rates, most likely. To ever, you know, shrink the world to a certain level and then reach replacement rate again is, is difficult even. Um, so don't be afraid of overpopulation. Be afraid of the opposite. And if you want to grow a regional or play the regional power game, a bigger country is more powerful than a smaller country. The big problem in doing this is that we screw up the process of growth. 
are we growing infrastructure at the same rate? In Australia over the last 20 years, we completely screwed this up. We grew population at a faster rate than infrastructure. You know, in, in Melbourne, you, you built a point cook, but you don't connect it decently. So you have a traffic bottleneck. Everybody hates it. This becomes a crappy area to live in. You don't want to do this. You want to have infrastructure lead population growth. This way you can grow a country in a healthy way. And this way you avoid sentiment like, you know, anti-immigrant uh, sentiment, mm. because then the argument is essentially, well, we have all those migrants and now sit in a traffic jam if there weren't the migrants there wouldn't be a traffic jam something like this mm. you can integrate population even a very diverse uh, population but it does take time it does take effort and it does take additional parallel investment into infrastructure social and physical infrastructure and then there's no reason you can't run a super successful uh, australia at uh, at twice or four times the size well it takes policy um, are you going to run for, you know, for parliament at any Absolutely. stage? Absolutely not. <laughs> I just want to sit on the sidelines and, and uh, comment. Commentate. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, been amazing to chat again, Simon. Uh, so much going on in that brain of yours. So, so much, so thanks so much for coming on. Oh, big pleasure. Always happy to visit the elephant. Fantastic. We're so pleased to have a chat with you again today, Simon. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.